This morning we're concluding our series working through the Old Testament book of Esther. So just by way of something of a recap, throughout this book, time and time again, we've come face to face, haven't we, with the unseen sovereignty of God. We've seen how, despite surface appearances, God is always working behind the scenes to further his purposes in the world and also in our lives. We've also seen that God's purposes in the world and in our lives as well are incredibly good. So we can trust him. We can trust him completely, even when our circumstances in life are very, very hard. And we can also find the courage to step out in faith and take risks for God, entrusting our fate to him, regardless of the outcome. And we've also learned over the last few weeks that God places people in positions of responsibility in the secular world to be like salt and light. We've seen that we're to be people of influence. We're to be people who shape the culture around us. And if this is to happen, we dare not devalue our jobs. We need to see our workplaces as potential mission fields and be regularly asking the question, what does God want to do in my workplace, or what does God want to do on my campus, or what does God want to do in my school? Now, if you remember, at the point we left the story a couple of weeks ago now, all of the Jewish people in the ancient Persian Empire were under a death sentence from which they couldn't escape. I left you on a bit of a cliffhanger last time, and well done for waiting patiently for two weeks. I guess you could have flicked on in the story to see what happened. But against the backdrop of uh, this imminent disaster, Esther and her uncle Mordecai were faced with the choice of risking everything in the hope that their people might perhaps be saved. And they made that choice. And they took some pretty substantial risks and they ended up entrusting their fate, and in fact the fate of the entire nation, into the hands of God. And what we find today, in the conclusion of this story, is a pretty dramatic and a pretty complete reversal of events. It's as though God completely turns the tables. The Jewish people aren't just saved from their terrible fate, but they're given a whole new position of esteem and respect within the whole Persian Empire. And those who have been seeking their destruction, those who have been looking to murder and slaughter them, were themselves destroyed. Now look, what I want us to see today, as we close out the remaining chapters of this book, is that God is well able to turn the tables in our lives as well. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, but I guess there are going to be any number of people in this room right now facing what seem like pretty insurmountable challenges, pretty impossible situations. I mean, let's be honest, all of us at times go through periods where we feel in desperate, desperate, desperate need of deliverance. It might be from the despair that comes when we've lost a loved one. It could be the stress that comes from financial crisis. It might be an ongoing health concern for us or someone we care for. It might be a relationship that falls apart. It could be a conflict within our family or maybe at work. It could be anxiety about the future. How's it all going to work out? It could be a battle with loneliness, maybe with depression. And on the outside, you can look as though everything is going very, very well. And everyone around you could be duped into thinking you've got it all together. But on the inside, secretly, 
you're crying out to God for help. And the good news is, God actually hears your cry. And the even better news is that he is the one who can turn the tables in our lives. He's the one who can turn sorrow into joy. He's the one who can bring hope right into the middle of hopelessness. And that's what we find in these final two chapters of the book of Esther. So I want us to dive in. Just to say, it is two chapters we're going to be reading. The second chapter is altogether shorter than the first one. But I want to read a a, a longer uh, amount of scripture than we normally would, just so you get this whole overview of how God turns the tables in this situation. And I'll kind of uh, intersperse the reading with little comments and commentary as we go, before drawing out some lessons for us today. Let's look what happens. Chapter 9, verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. In fact, just to explain, not just one edict, but two conflicting edicts were to be carried out on that same day. First of all, the edict that the entire Jewish community in the Persian Empire be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And also the edict giving the Jewish people the right to defend themselves against extermination. So chaos was likely to ensue. Let's continue reading in verse 1. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now, the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities, in all the provinces of King Xerxes, to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators, they ended up helping the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace, and his reputation had spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. It seems like In the months following Mordecai's promotion that we saw last time, there had been something of a political shift throughout the whole empire. And apparently, everyone who was anyone was suddenly wanting to align themselves with this new rising star of the kingdom. And so, with all of this help now on their side, verse 5 describes how the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed a whole bunch of people with very unpronounceable names who were in fact the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. Now, just by way of an aside, some people have real issues with the Old Testament. And the issues they have surround passages like the one we're looking at today with all of this blood and gore and slaughter and war and all of that. They don't like the fact that God's people fought their enemies. But you need to understand this is real history. You need to wake up to what life is like in the real world. It's messy. God's people here are forced to defend themselves in the face of mass genocide. Why don't you put yourself in their situation? 
An edict has been given, giving permission for your enemies to kill not only you, but all of your family and all of your friends. If you were then given permission to defend yourself, I'd suggest you would probably take it up. Quite frankly, I think we're being naive if we think that this is just going to be a morally very tidy business. In fact, what we actually see as we keep on reading is that the Jews were really quite restrained in all of this. Even though the edict, the ordinance allowed it, verse 10 says they did not lay their hands on the plunder. It's like they were fighting for their lives here. It wasn't about selfish gain. Reading on, verse 11. The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. And if that's what they've done here, I wonder, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? He then defers to Esther. He says to her, Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What's your request? It will also be granted. And it seems as though the threat within the citadel of Susa was still very much alive. And so Esther replies, if it pleases the king, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow as well. And perhaps as a display of victory, maybe as a warning to their attackers, she also requests that the bodies of Haman's sons be hanged on gallows. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men. But notice, once again, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them. But then, for the third time now, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. I don't know what you think, but I think this continued emphasis that the Jews didn't lay hands on the plunder of their enemies surely underscores the fact that actions weren't inspired by hatred, unlike those of their enemies. Their desire wasn't retaliation, rather it was relief and freedom from very grave danger. Verse 17, this happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled and fought on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made that a day of feasting and joy. The author here is providing a bit of historical commentary, a bit of historical perspective on what was going on. Now, just in case you were wondering and perplexed by all of this and wouldn't be able to concentrate as I keep on speaking, helpfully he explains that is why the rural Jews, those living in the villages, observed the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to one another, while implication, those living in the city celebrated on the 15th. We're clear on that. You, you don't need to worry about that anymore. Verse 20, Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, 
to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving of presents of food to one another and of gifts to the poor. And then comes this summary of this great reversal of events, which is provided to preserve the significance of this celebration. And again, it's quite a lengthy passage, but I want to read it all so we, we grasp something of what was going on here. Verse 23, so the Jews agreed to continue the celebration that they had begun doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pur, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word pur, because everything written in this letter, and because of what they'd seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. And Queen Esther wanted a bit of the action as well, so she also wrote a letter to go on record to confirm all that had happened. Verse 29, so Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. And then chapter 10, which is a significantly shorter chapter. Let's read it, starting verse 1. King Xerxes imposed tribute, that's a tax, throughout the whole empire to its distant shores, presumably to pay for all the damage caused by the two days of fighting that had just occurred. And all his acts of power and might together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king had raised him, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai, the Jew, was now second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. A lengthy passage... But as turnarounds go, I suggest this is right up there with the very best of them. If you remember, Esther had been sentenced to this life of isolation and fear, being married to this Persian king Xerxes, who really was a tyrant. 
Mordecai, her uncle, was in line for the gallows for refusing to bow down to the evil Haman. And all of the Jewish people throughout the whole Persian Empire were facing extermination. It was a pretty impossible situation. And yet God, in his faithfulness, radically turns the tables. Esther becomes this prominent and powerful queen, not just a puppet queen or a prized possession like her predecessor, a woman of real influence. Mordecai, he lives out this rags-to-riches story from being an unknown employee of the imperial workforce, a, a member of the civil service of his day, to being a trusted and powerful ruler alongside the king, respected and admired by all his countrymen. And then there are the Jewish people. They were not only spared from destruction, but they gained an entirely new level of respect as a people throughout the whole empire to the degree that many people wanted to become Jews themselves. God had turned the tables in a truly spectacular way. But what can we learn from all of this today? As we're faced with our own seemingly impossible situations, what are some of the lessons that we can glean from the story of Esther? I want to leave you with four suggestions. Four things that I think we need to remember today as we trust God to turn the tables for us. Here's the first one. When trusting God to turn the tables in our lives, first of all, we need to remember that God often works in ways that are natural and ordinary. God often works in ways that are both natural and very ordinary. Jewish people, they found themselves facing a death sentence with apparently no way out and nowhere to turn. If anyone ever needed a miracle, these people needed one. And yet the miracle they received wasn't some sudden, dramatic, supernatural occurrence. It wasn't like the fire that came down from the heavens with Elijah. It wasn't like the Red Sea suddenly opening up and parting, as happened with Moses. It wasn't even like the multiplication of the five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 people in the ministry of Jesus. It was actually this unknown Jewish orphan girl whom God had positioned in the royal palace long before they ever had a problem. The miracle they received was simply God sovereignly working through the details of ordinary, everyday life. It's like their miracle came through the natural dispositions of people. Their miracle came through the established structures of society. Their miracle came through the simple unfolding of daily events. And often... That's how God works in our lives as well. Not all the time through the spectacular. Of course, he can work in spectacular ways, but not all the time. Often he works through very ordinary means. And as we trust God to turn the tables in our lives, we never know what will unfold and when. We never know what details will arise and what events will occur, and what people he will use to turn the tables, or for that matter, exactly when he will do it. But he knows. For him, mysteries aren't mysteries at all. And the outcome isn't unforeseen by him. God knows. 
Perhaps the key lesson that this story of Esther teaches us today is that we can trust God completely even when things look completely bleak for us. And so our best bet is to just stick close to the one who is at work in the natural and the ordinary course of events to bring about his good purposes. Rather than raging against God for allowing these things to happen, we'll be better served to stay close to him. Lesson number two. When trusting God to turn the tables in our lives, we also need to remember to focus our energy on being the kind of person whom God can use. We need to focus our energy on being people that God can use. At the end of the day, Esther and Mordecai were people of such character and such phenomenal integrity and faith that they ended up winning the favor of those around them, even in the midst of some pretty dire circumstances. It's like their focus was on being the kind of people that God could use, and he used them, he did. We see pretty much the same thing with Joseph in the Old Testament when he was in prison. We see it with David while he was on the run to protect his life. We see it many times in the example of the Apostle Paul, whether whether he was shipwrecked, on trial, or himself in prison. To some extent, we also see it in Mary and Joseph in the lead-up to the birth of Jesus as they lived with suspicion and shame. Throughout the Bible, we see loads and loads and loads of examples of ordinary men and women and children whose circumstances were in need of being flipped. And yet, they put their focus not simply on their circumstances, but on being people that God could use. I think the challenge for us is to do the same. Okay, I want to volunteer. Someone who prides themselves in being particularly strong. Okay, maybe maybe the use of the word pride is off-putting. Prides of sin, so you're not going to volunteer. Who here thinks they have a reasonable amount of strength? Uh, Nathan does, but he, he knows how this works. So I'm going to go for Russ, <laughs> who may as well know. But uh, Russ, we'd like to stand up. I have here um, a famous source of uh, Chinese torture. Uh, would you like to hold out your finger, please? No. <laughs> <laughs> Russ, hold out your finger. That one will be fine. Okay, I want you to just carefully and gently put your finger in there, yeah, as far as it will go. Uh, we'll go further, we'll go further. And now I want you to pull as hard as you can to release your finger, exerting great effort. Great effort. Okay, <laughs> no, no, that, that is probably enough. Okay, even the mighty Russ cannot conquer this, this Chinese implement. Okay, I want you now to relax, just very gently take it off. Yeah, uh, round of applause, <laughs> round of applause for my noble assistant. There was a point to that. Sometimes... Our problems in life can be a little bit like one of these Chinese finger traps. I didn't tell you the full title before you came up. (laughs) Now you know. The more we pull and the more we struggle, the tighter it locks us up. But the more we ease up, the more it seems to release its grip. You know, a lot of the time, we can respond to problems in life in much the same way. We can focus on them, and we can wrestle with them, and we can fight against them, but all the time they seem to constrain us even more. But when we ease off, our circumstances don't constrain or trap us 
quite so tightly. And very often, that's when the solution seems to present itself. I'm not saying we don't still try and do everything we need to do to try and change our circumstances. But just like with Esther and Mordecai, there comes a point when we've done all we can naturally do. We just need to relax our grip and focus our energy on being who God wants us to be right in the midst of our circumstances and trust him with the rest. So I might have circumstances that desperately need to be changed. And I might have worries that are just weighing me down right now. I may have people who are making life very, very difficult and awkward for me. But all the time, I'm going to refuse to be a victim of my circumstances. I'm going to focus on God and ensure that my heart is right before Him. And I'm going to keep trusting that ultimately, despite appearances, He is still in control of my life. And in His own good way, and in His own good time, he will turn the tables. And even if I can't see a whole load of evidence going on right now that he's doing anything, I'm not going to allow it to get to me. And you know what? When we do that, when we live that way, very often God uses us. Let's face it, he's not going to use us if we're eating up with anger and resentment and bitterness and inner hurt. All the time, He's looking for people who trust him and are drawing strength from him to keep on persevering. People who are guarding their hearts and keeping them pure. I want to urge you, whatever you are going through right now, don't allow yourself to become a victim of it. Don't allow your circumstances to define who you are. Don't become so obsessed with the problem that you lose sight of God. Right now, I believe God is calling some of you to look up and to restate your confidence in Him. And even though you may feel pretty useless at the moment, to allow Him to use you. Lesson number three. When trusting God to turn the tables in our lives, third thing we need to remember is that evil is always punished and God's justice will always prevail. Evil is always punished and God's justice will always prevail. Again, that's exactly what we see happening in this story. Haman devised this evil plan to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire Persian Empire. But God's purposes in the world are far more resolute than any plan devised by man, least of all Haman. You need to understand, God's promises are at stake. His character is at stake. His very name is at stake. His glory is at stake. His entire plan of redemption was at stake. So he wasn't about to allow his people to perish here. Now if you think about it, God could very easily have zapped Haman with a lightning bolt or something like that before the edict sentencing the Jewish people to death was even ever issued. That could have stopped the whole thing in an instant, end of problem, and and the book of Esther would have been significantly shorter. But had God worked in that way, no one would have been any the wiser. So instead, 
God allows this drama to be played out on the stage of normal life. He allows the tension to be ramped up, almost a breaking point. He allows the threat to be incredibly dangerous and very real. But eventually, Haman was hanged on the very gallows that he himself had built for Mordecai. And Mordecai was given Haman's position of power. And the very nobles and satraps and officials and governors who were supposed to assist in the annihilation of the Jews, they wound up assisting in their victory. It's like God uses the natural course of events and the structures of society to punish evil and to bring about justice in the lives of his people. And in so doing, he highlighted his sovereign hand at work in the details of life so that everyone would see there really is a God in heaven and end up giving him praise. Hope you're getting the message. We today can trust God to work the same way in our lives as well. Sometimes, you know, we'd love for God just to zap our enemies there and then, those people who harm us, the people who threaten us, the people who offend us, the people who make life hard for us. Maybe an ex-husband or an ex-wife, an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe an impossible boss at work or a co-worker who just cheats to get ahead of us or that noisy neighbor who keeps us awake half the night. God, just zap them. Just eliminate the problem. Strike them down. Let your justice be done. And sometimes we're very willing to give God a helping hand. Lord, would you mind just turning away for a moment while I exert your justice for you? But that's when we need to let the drama play out and keep ourselves focused on doing what's right and what's good and trusting God to work sovereignly in the natural course of events to punish wrongdoing and bring about justice for his people. And he does. By and large, sooner or later, he does. In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, God gives us this phenomenal promise. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. God will bring about justice. He will see to it that that evil is punished. So what do we do in the meantime? What do we do to those who do us wrong? Well, the very next verse tells us, Romans 12, verse 20, gives us this pretty challenging counsel. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In other words, be kind to them. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I don't want you to miss this. If we trust God to bring about justice, suddenly we are released from the need to gain revenge ourselves. But you know, bitterness and hurt have this habit of clinging on to us. As long as we hold on to those feelings, as long as we permit them to stay in our minds, our enemies continue to have a hold over us. Which is where this incredibly radical teaching in Romans 12 really kicks in. You see, the best way to release ourselves from the grip of our enemies 
is to bless them. I tell you, it's very hard to hold on to bitterness towards someone if you're looking for ways to do them good. Why not try it? Not put it to the test. Pray for people who oppose you. Refuse to badmouth them. Refuse to pass on gossip about them. Look for practical ways to bless them. Now, I'm not being naive. It will be incredibly hard at times. But if you know that justice ultimately rests in the hands of God, in faith you can do this. Lesson number four. When trusting God to turn the tables in your life, remember fourthly and finally to celebrate what he has already done to turn the tables in your life. Celebrate what he has already done in turning the tables in your life. The reason why the celebration of Purim was established, why it was celebrated every year, and the reason why Mordecai and Esther were so careful to preserve the significance of the celebration in writing, and it may have seemed very tedious as we read through it all, but the reason for it was so that future generations would never ever forget how God had turned the tables in the lives of his people. Because you see, one day, they in turn would find themselves in a position where they too needed the deliverance of God. The whole purpose of the annual celebration of Purim was for it to be this graphic, vivid reminder to future generations that God really is the one who turns the tables in their lives as well. He's the one who turns sorrow into joy. He's the one who turns mourning into celebration. Now even today, this festival remains one of the most jubilant celebrations within the Jewish religious year. The customs, the requirements, they vary depending on whether a person subscribes to orthodox, conservative, or reformed Jewish traditions. But Purim still has some basic ingredients common to all Jews. The day before Purim, Jewish people right across the world, they observed the Esther fast. It's this minor fast commemorating the three days fast that Esther requested of all the Jews in Susa before she stood before King Xerxes. And then the day of Purim itself arrives. And it's a day of incredible celebration. People gather for the reading of the whole of the Esther story. And all goes well for the first two chapters. But then in chapter 3, when Haman's name is mentioned for the first time, everyone hisses and boos and stamps their feet and, and jeers. And in the midst of all of that, there's also a whole load of eating and drinking. They give gifts of food and drink and money to one another and to the poor, exactly as Mordecai had instructed. It sounds great fun, doesn't it? I mean, we should celebrate it. It happens in March. Next March, you could do it. Celebrate the Feast of Purim kind of makes you want to celebrate Purim. But in a way, we already do. As Christians, we have a celebration of remembrance as well. A time of honoring and recalling our deliverance when the tables of sin and death and hell were turned once and for all on a Roman cross. If you remember... Just before his crucifixion, 
Jesus told his followers to eat the bread and drink the wine of Passover as a new memorial. It was to be eaten in memory of him as the one who rescued us from the terrors of eternal punishment, the one who delivered to us a brand new edict of life. It was to be a meal of joy observed until his return. Now, you may have noticed as a church We don't tend to celebrate the Lord's Supper together when we gather like this on a Sunday. You may wonder why that is. The reason is largely because the whole context for this celebration wasn't a meeting, but a meal. If you like, Jesus reached out and took two common things that would accompany a meal, bread and wine, and he turned them into pretty graphic visual aids. His intention was that whenever believers ate together down through the rest of history, the bread and the wine on the table would act as a constant, permanent reminder of what he had done for them. And in the midst of their being sociable, they'd see the bread and they'd see the wine and almost spontaneously they'd give time to thanking him once again for the cross. And so as a church, we encourage our life groups to celebrate the Lord's Supper whenever they have food together, which is pretty much every week. And if you have friends from the church round for a meal and you happen to have bread and wine just there on the table, why not spend some time thanking Jesus for what he's done for you? That's what Jesus had in mind. I want you to grasp that celebrating the Lord's Supper is so much more than a religious ritual. It's not supposed to be awkward. It's not supposed to be embarrassing. It's not supposed to be just a a ritual, all somber and serious. It's a celebration. It's a joy-filled reminder of what Jesus has accomplished for us and, and a celebration of the hope that we have for the future. You know, life can be really very tough at times. But even right there in the midst of the trials of life, we still have reason for substantial joy. We know God. Relationship with him has been restored through the cross. So even though we go through trials of many kinds, we go through them with God right beside us, encouraging us and comforting us and strengthening us. And if that brings us joy right now, that joy is a faint echo of the joy that's to come. There's coming a day when Jesus will return and will right all wrongs. He's the coming judge who will ensure that justice will be done. Now, that's incredibly reassuring because you don't need to be a great historian to know that injustice doesn't always get punished in this life. Maybe you know people right now for whom the tables weren't turned, Perhaps the appearances of their enemies triumphing over them. Perhaps that's how you feel at the moment as you think about your own situation and your own life. But as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, much like the Jews celebrating this festival of Purim, we, like them, are anticipating the ultimate reversal at the end of time, when suffering and pain will cease, when all wrongs will be righted, when justice really will be done, when the righteous will truly be vindicated, and where those who have persevered 
will be rewarded. All these years on, we can read this story of Esther, and we can love seeing the reversal of fortunes of God's people back then. And we can celebrate what God does for them, knowing He will do the same for us, if not in this life, certainly in the life to come. So if you like, the Lord's Supper is our defense against forgetfulness. It's a celebration of the salvation we have that's available to all through faith in Jesus. It's a celebration. It's also a declaration. It's a declaration that God, through Jesus, is our deliverer. He's the one who turned the tables not only for us, but for all those who put their trust and hope in him. And it's also a reminder. It's a reminder that he who turned the tables for us in the greatest way imaginable is still very much at work today, bringing about his good purposes in the world and individually in our lives too. So we can trust him, even when the tables need turning again. So let me ask you, are there situations you're facing where it feels like the tables need turning in your life? Or remember that God often works in ways that are natural and ordinary. And remember to focus your energy, not so much on the problem, but on being a person that God can use. Remember that evil is always punished. Justice will ultimately always prevail. And remember to celebrate what he's already done to turn the tables in your life.